Chip Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force in armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. This is episode eight, and so far I've been getting some great feedback on the podcast. But if you have suggestions, comments, critiques, please do drop me a line. My contact information is on the website at jibjabpodcast.com. And if you are liking the podcast, please do take a moment to rate it on iTunes or whatever platform you use and do help spread the word to your colleagues, friends, and so forth. Now, today I'm speaking with Monica Hakimi, who needs no introduction to those working in most areas of international law. Monica is the James V. Campbell Professor of Law and the Associate Dean of Faculty and Research at the University of Michigan Law School. Her research covers a wide range of public international law and foreign relations law, but with some focus on human and national security. Before joining the Academy, she served in the Office of Legal Advisor at the U.S. State Department, during which time she worked on nuclear proliferation and the reconstruction of Iraq after the invasion of 2003, among other things. She also served as legal counsel before the U.S.-Iran Claims Tribunal. She's a contributing editor for Egil Talk, the blog for the European Journal of International Law, and serves on the board of editors of the American Society of International Law. A link to her full bio is on the website. Many listeners will know that there has been considerable discussion and debate recently about an article of Monica's on the nature and operation of customary international law, including a full symposium at the international law blog Opinio Juris, at an episode on the Use Kogan's podcast. But in this episode, we talk about her article on what she calls the informal regulation of use ad bellum. The title of the article is The Use Ad Bellum's Regulatory Form, and it'll be posted on the website. And in it, Monica argues that the UN Security Council, when it withholds approval for a use of force, at times and in various ways, endorses or signals support for state use of force, thereby providing some authority for action that would otherwise be a clear violation of use ad bellum. And that this endorsement or conferral of authority short of formal approval tends to dampen any criticism of the otherwise unlawful conduct. She argues that this regulatory form supplements what she calls the standard rules of use ad bellum. And in particular circumstances, it helps explain why apparently unlawful acts are accepted by other states. And now in our discussion, we explore some of the theoretical assumptions about international law itself that underpin this argument. We debate a little the normative implications and some of her normative arguments regarding this informal regulation. And this includes a really interesting discussion of how or to what extent the the embrace of such informal regulation is consistent with different conceptions of the rule of law. And that finally leads us into a short discussion of another forthcoming essay of Monica's, actually a chapter in a book, on the importance of argumentation and deliberation in the operation of use ad bellum. So all in all, it is a really fascinating discussion that will likely challenge some people's understanding of use ad bellum and certainly give everyone lots of food for thought. So without more, I bring you Professor Monica Hakimi. Monica Hakimi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's really delightful to be here. Well, before we dig in, and I've promised everyone that we're really not going to talk very much about your revolutionary views on customary international law, which has been discussed at great length elsewhere. But I thought before we get into the substance, I would just ask you to share something about yourself that even some of your colleagues wouldn't know about you. Something fascinating. Okay. I think something that people are sometimes surprised to hear is that I was a little bit of a jock in high school. So I played a number of sports, but really focused on field hockey, was all state for a couple of years, thought about playing in college. But ultimately, the nerds threw me away and I went into academia instead of professional sports. (laughs) So I do notice from your bio that in addition to clerking, you served in the Office of Legal Advisor to the State Department, which also, which included some fascinating work on Iraq and so forth, and worked as well as a counsel before the Iran-U.S. Claims Tribunal. And so how did you end up sort of making the segue into academia? You know, I, the truth is I didn't have a huge amount of guidance when I was picking my career path. 
And so I had always sort of thought about teaching, wasn't sure that it was something I definitely wanted to do or that I could do. And after a couple of years at the State Department, someone I knew from law school, you know, contacted me and said, I know you've thought about teaching. We have this visiting assistant professorship uh, position at Cardozo. Would you be interested in doing that? And I thought, well, yeah, it's a perfect way to like decide whether I really want to do this to test it out for two years. So I took a leave of absence from the State Department for two years and went to Cardozo to do what's known as a VAP right. and decided I liked it and wanted to go on the market and then just did that. Cool. Interesting. Well, these sorts of stories are always, I think, interesting if for no one else, the students listening to the podcast. So that's great. So today, looking at a somewhat older article on the USAD Bellum's regulatory form, which has the somewhat more modest goal not to over overturn all of our thinking on customer international law, but to, quote, fundamentally change how international lawyers and policymakers think about the use ad bellum regime. Still pretty ambitious goals. And certainly, I think everyone's going to agree by the time we get to the end of this, that it does challenge us to think seriously about how the use ad bellum operates. But before we dive into the argument and start unpacking some of the detail, I thought it'd be helpful for our listeners to first talk a little bit about how you understand the operation of international law itself. And in fact, we could start with footnote 70 of the article, in which you suggest that while you do not rely on any particular theory of jurisprudence in developing your argument, the New Haven School would be very much on point in doing so. And... I do get the sense that you have a process theory sort of approach to international law and that this informs a lot of the assumptions underlying the argument. And I think it would make uh, sense for us to talk a little bit about that before we dive into the substance. Okay, sure. So actually, I mean, since you mentioned it, my piece on custom and this piece on the use of Bellum's regulatory form have some similarities in how I think about law and my jurisprudential underpinnings. So in many ways, the more recent customary international law piece elaborates on some of like the assumptions that are embedded in this piece. Yeah. But basically, I would say I'm not positivist in my inclinations. So I'd say most international lawyers, even those who don't self-identify as legal positivists, sort of approach international law with, I would say, certain positivist assumptions. They assume that international law is created through some kind of consensual arrangement which then gets solidified in a set of sources. And those sources then, in some sense, get handed down to and to the people who on the ground are supposed to apply and use them. And that the content of the law basically resides in the sources. And it's just for people on the ground, basically, to figure out how to apply them in certain cases. And absent some consensually established revision to what was established in the sources, the sources basically stay as they are. That's not really my view of how authority works in the international legal system. I think authority is much more contestable. And I think we see that it's contestable in the law's everyday operation, particularly in the use of vellum. We know that the content of the law that governs the use of cross-border force is very often contested. So even though we have a set of sources, you might say, in the form of the UN Charter, and various interpretive documents that try to elaborate on the content of the charter. Still, the content of the law is, in the ordinary course, contested, and in my view, constituted and reconstituted and shaped in ways large and small by the many social interactions that put it at issue. So in my view, looking consistently to to a single set of sources, in this case, the UN Charter, to try to figure out what the law is, leads to a somewhat impoverished understanding of the law because it doesn't actually reflect how the authority of the law, the content of the law, actually plays out in discrete context. Okay. So I think we'll leave that there. I'm I'm sure we'll circle back to explore some of those assumptions uh, more deeply as we get into the article. But turning to the article and just, I think, to perhaps introduce it in an oversimplified way, as I understand it, you're arguing that in addition to the well-established and widely recognized general standards of the USAD Bellum regime, as reflected in the Charter and in customary international law, you argue that there are some informal regulations emanating from the conduct of the UN Security Council that supplement the general standards in some cases, and that 
our understanding of how this informal regulation operates would help us to make better sense of what's going on, particularly in those cases in which it seems like states have violated the clear standards, the general standards of the USAID Bellum regime, and yet nonetheless, most countries, most states seem to be accepting of the conduct. Mm -hmm. And your view is, as I understand it, that it's in particularly those cases that a, the, the common view of USAID Bellum can't really make sense of those cases. Mm -hmm. So I'll leave it there and let you sort of pick up and explain in more depth sort of the, the overarching uh, argument. Okay, great. And I can tie it back into what we were talking about earlier about my sort of conception of authority. So, you know, I think the standard account of use of Bellum is that the UN Charter prohibits uh, non-consensual cross-border force in Article 2.4 and then ha has certain exceptions. So one exception is if the Security Council authorizes the use of force, then force is permissible within the, within the contours of that authorization. And the other is that in Article 51 of the UN Charter, states may use force and self-defense. So as usually formulated, the use ad bellum consists of, I would say, a set of what people describe as general standards, generally applicable conduct norms that apply across the board, the prohibition plus the two exceptions. And then some people say there's a third exception for cases involving humanitarian interventions, but that's contested. And so... When people come to assess particular cases, their analytic frame is always to ask, well, does a particular use of force fit within any of the generally applicable standards? Is it a violation of Article 2.4? If it is, does it come within one of the exceptions? And the assumption is that the entire content of the law is defined by those generally applicable standards. And the point of my article is to say, like, actually, the content of the law is not entirely defined by those generally applicable standards, that there is another mode of regulation in the use of bellum, what I refer to as the informal regulation of use of bellum. And it, what it does, this mode of regulation, like essentially takes advantage of the authority that the Security Council has as a factual matter, even if not as a formal legal matter, by which I mean the authority that people actually attribute to the Security Council, not the authority that is necessarily defined in the text of the charter. And they go to the council and they say, like, look, I want to use force in some way that at least pushes the boundaries of or exceeds the, the bounds of the generally applicable standards. And if I can get the Security Council in some way to sign off on my operation, that process of, of the Security Council's signing off ends up conferring authority on the operation and giving it some, making it sort of, I would say, more lawful than it otherwise would be. Right. So it's hard to know where to start. There are so many questions. But let's perhaps before I'll withhold um, the questions for a moment and, and perhaps give you an opportunity to explain a couple of the examples that you, you look at in the article to flesh out and, and sort of give a practical uh, example of how this operates. Yeah, great. So thank you. So I use a couple examples in the article, and the examples are meant to show both the basic uh, phenomenon that I'm describing, which is there's a use of force operation. It's not clear whether it's lawful under the generally applicable standards, but the council sort of weighs in, confers authority on the operation, and the operation is, because of the council's action, is my argument, accepted as lawful, even though its justification under the general standard is tenuous. And I, so that, that is a basic phenomenon, but the council, I argue, engages in this kind of regulation in lots of different ways and at various stages in the use of force operations. So I give some examples, the Mali and the Yemen, Mali and Yemen are two examples in which states use force in another state and claim that the justification for using force there is that the other standing government in the other state has consented to the operation. But because the standing government has lost considerable control or authority over portions of its territory, it's not clear under the generally applicable standards whether its consent is sufficient, in fact, to justify the use of force. Because as a general matter, Article, as we just back up for a minute, Article 2.4 prohibits uh, non-consensual operations. And then the question is, well, what qualifies as a sufficient kind of consent? 
so as to make an otherwise unlawful operation lawful. Right. And where an interim, where a government has lost considerable control or authority over portions of its territory in the midst of, for example, an internal conflict, there are questions about whether that government can then consent to an operation and therefore provide the justification for the use of force. And so both in Mali and in Yemen, the intervening states basically went to the Security Council either before they wanted to intervene or leading up to the intervention to get the Security Council to sign off on the, on the idea that one faction basically within that state was the legitimate government of that state. And so long as the intervening states got the consent, therefore, of that faction, their their use of force in that state could be justified in consensual terms. So they basically used the council to establish the predicate fact that this that this government that that a particular government was the legitimate government of that state and could therefore consent to an operation to then justify a consensual operation. And so the council is is essentially saying like, yeah, so long as you get that entity's consent, it's fine. So that's, those are two cases. Then I use the case involving ECOWAS's intervention in Liberia. This is a very well-known example. The economic community of West African states intervened in the Liberian civil war. They went to the Security Council in advance of the intervention. The Security Council did not authorize the intervention. Nevertheless, ECOWAS went in, got embroiled in the Liberian civil war. And over time, the Security Council essentially endorsed what ECOWAS was doing in Liberia, but never actually formally authorized it. And scholars, again, have tried hard to try to explain why the ECOWAS operation was ultimately sort of accepted as appropriate, even though it was not justifiable in self-defense. The Security Council never authorized it. And again, consent was a very weak basis for intervening because it was in the midst of a civil war. And my argument is, well, the reason it uh, is widely perceived to have been lawful is because the Security Council stepped up and endorsed it in the midst of the operation. And that imprimatur of Security Council support effectively conferred authority on the operation and settled the question of its lawfulness. And then the third kind of case that I talk about is I use the recent, the 2018 uh, or the 2017 use of force in Syria by the United States in response to the Syrian government's use of chemical weapons against its own people. And here, the United States used force, not in self-defense, not with the Security Council's authorization. And any claim that it was acting for humanitarian reasons was suspect because, of course, it was only acting in response to the use of chemical weapons and not to respond to the mass atrocities that were otherwise being committed in Syria. And it's not even clear that the United States was acting primarily for humanitarian reasons. It seemed to be acting mostly in what many people would call, for what many people would call a reprisal, basically to deter the continued use of chemical weapons. And so it seemed to be, again, it's an operation that is really hard to justify under the terms of the general standards. But the United States went to the Security Council had a conversation about it. And in the, in the Security Council, lots of states, although not all states, essentially demonstrated their support for the United States. And in this case, because the council itself did not act, I think there's a more open question about the extent to which that process of going to the council and having the conversation within the council and getting mem- many mem- council members to, to support the operation, whether that was enough to confer authority on the operation and ultimately uh, make it lawful as opposed to unlawful, right? If you're gonna, if you're gonna insist on that binary. But at the very least, I do think going to the council, uh, did change, let's say, the normative valence in law of the operation. And I think it changed it in ways that were relevant when the United States and the United Kingdom and France then did, did a very, conducted a very similar operation a year later. And so the point of the article is just to say, like, look, if you want to actually analyze how the use of Bellum operates in specific cases, you have to account for what states are doing in the council and the way in which the council is actually acting to confer an authority on operations that might otherwise be difficult to justify. And if you don't account for this, what I call informal regulation, this procedural regulation through the council, you will have a more impoverished view of the law and you will not be able to analyze 
what's happening as well as you would if you actually take account for it. Right. So there's two aspects of the argument that I think we could still expand on a little bit before I dive into the questions. And I mean, the one you've touched on a little bit, but you, in each of these instances, each of these examples, you go through how scholars have tried to explain the events uh, and, and particularly explain the apparent acceptance of what would otherwise have been clearly unlawful conduct. And that those explanations are just entirely unpersuasive. And, and these are effectively explanations that are informed by this, what you call the standard view of use ad bellum, and even those who are both scholars who are taking a positivist view of it, but even people like Harold Coe, who come at it from a more process theory approach, but nonetheless uh, sticks to the standard view, ends up with sort of a very, as you put it, impoverished and unpersuasive account of what happened and, and how it is that countries have acquiesced in or accepted what was clearly unlawful. And then you go on to explain how taking into account the informal regulation would make more sense of this. So perhaps we could talk a little bit about that. But then in addition to that, I guess that leads to the question of, well, so how then should we understand the operation of this informal regulation? You're effectively arguing that this is part of the use ad bellum. We need to understand that this is part of the use ad bellum. But then I guess I'd like to hear more about exactly how we're to understand its operation and when we're to look for it and and whether, and you know, as we'll get into the questions, whether that doesn't lead into a, a, a perhaps a, a degree of indeterminacy about when and how it operates and, and how then should we understand the use of Bellum. Yeah, great. So I would say there are two analytic flaws that pervade the standard account in these cases. The first is that the standard account, because it looks to explain the apparent lawfulness or appropriateness to many states of these operations by reference to the general standards, it consistently diminishes the role of the Security Council in helping to establish authority for the operations. And so that matters if you're trying to explain the episode or use the episode as a precedent, like in future cases, to guide decision makers on how to think about what happened in a given case. So, for example, in the ECOWAS case, scholars have said things, again, just to refresh everyone's recollection, in, e in the ECOWAS case, ECOWAS intervened in Liberia, and after a bit, the Security Council endorsed but never formally authorized the use of force. And scholars, a number of scholars have looked at the case to say like, oh, well, maybe we should look at this as evidence of ex, an ex post authorization by the council. And that's why, for the most part, people think the ECOWAS operation was lawful because eventually the council did authorize it. And so we can explain it by reference to one of the general standards and everything can be tied in this neat bow and we're good to go. We don't need to worry about the doctrine not reflecting reality. Right. But that move, I think, is disingenuous for a couple of reasons. First of all, the council actually made a concerted decision not to authorize the ECOWAS intervention in the early stages. And even once it endorsed what ECOWAS did, it never used the talismanic language that, of course, it knows it may use. It's not as if it doesn't know what language to use when it chooses to authorize the use of force. It actually uses the language right. of authorization, and it chose not to use it in this case. So. It's just, it obscures the standard account, obscures that reality of what the relationship was between the council and in this case, the individual states acting outside the council, ECOWAS. And that matters because below, a lot of what we talk about when we talk about the use of vellum is who has authority to make particular kinds of decision, what the allocation of decision-making authority is as between the council and states acting outside of the council. And if we're going to pretend the council acted where it in fact did not, we're not really being honest about where decision-making actually resided and, and who ultimately made the decision. And so we're not in a position to evaluate, for example, the normativity of that particular operation. Like, is it a problem that in fact the Security Council did not authorize this operation? That, that question 
is off the table if you claim contrary to fact that the council did authorize it. So it's disingenuous for that reason, but it's also a problem for a second reason, which is that it tends to overstate the standard mode of analyzing these cases tends to overstate the precedential value of particular incidents and tends consistently, therefore, to lead to an expansion of the parameters of the general standard. So let me explain what I mean. Again, we can use the ECOWAS case as an example. In the ECOWAS case, the claim is, the claim, the standard account again was either that the Security Council authorized the operation after the fact. And some people said like, well, no, that's like, that's a little bit weird. That's funny. Ex post authorization doesn't make a bunch of sense. So maybe we should understand that this was an operation in which the, the standing government's consent is what made ECOWAS's intervention lawful. And then they, what they try to do is they try to explain how they try to use the particular case to say to, to what I say in the article is generalize up as a method of analysis. And they use the fact to discern some kind of generally applicable standard or inform the generally applicable standard that will apply in future cases. So they will say like, well, look, maybe actually it is, maybe actually ex post authorization is actual a way to make lawful operations that are not otherwise lawful. And so that should be, as a general matter, a way of understanding how the charter operates. But again, there's no indication in the ECOWAS case that what the Security Council was doing was articulating some kind of general proposition that ex post authorizations are in fact an integral part of the regime. So you're sort of using the facts of a particular case that push the boundaries of the general standard to then define the general standards and expand the precedential weight of that case and expand the general standard itself. Or you could say the same thing about the consent justification. You might, people will look to this case and will say, well, look, if I don't really buy the ex post authorization argument, so I guess the only way to understand what was happening here is that consent, the consent was of the standing government was probably sufficient, even though that government had lost considerable control and authority. And therefore, we should understand that as a general matter, governments that have lost a lot of authority in the midst of a civil war might actually be able to consent to outside interventions across the board. So again, they use the fact to, of the particular case to inform the general standard and therefore expand its precedential reach beyond where states themselves in the particular incident meant to push the law. So that's a second real analytic flaw, I think, to standard accounts that try to sort of squeeze all of these like difficult cases and facts into the terms of the general standard so as to maintain the purity and sanctity of the doctrine and not let it get, not let it get sort of messed up by the facts on the ground. Right. So I was with you uh, in reading the article. I, I found you know your criticisms and critiques of the manner in which scholars are trying to sort of fit the, the round peg into the square hole of explaining how each of these instances was lawful or it was explicable under the standard view. And I also was persuaded by the argument that in trying to do that, you're actually doing some violence to the Yusad Balam by creating precedents that you don't want to be creating in these instances. But when you emphasize just now that you're saying like one of the, the problems with the attempt to explain, for example, the ECOWAS intervention in Liberia, using this ex post facto argument, and that the Security Council deliberately and quite intentionally did not use the specific language of approval. There's intuitively, it just seems problematic to say, well, yeah, they actually intentionally and deliberately did not approve, but nonetheless, we can take their encouragement and wink, wink, nod, nod statements as somehow conferring not formal approval, but some form of authority upon the acts of the, of the country that would otherwise have been violating international law. And so 
how does that actually operate? And isn't that problematic that we're now searching for signs from the Security Council, which has clearly determined not to approve uh, a use of force, which it actually asked for, right? So in the, in the Mali case, as I understand it, I mean, France was trying to get approval, doesn't get approval, but then continues to work and cajole the Security Council to get some encouraging signals that it can then leverage to say, well, we had some form of authority. And, and, and now you're going a step further and saying, in fact, we should take those kinds of signals of, of authority that are short of approval of the Security Council as being part of the USAID Bellum and should help us to understand the, the legitimacy, if not the lawfulness, or maybe even the lawfulness of the French action. Yeah, so I guess I would say, as a descriptive matter, it seems to me clear that when the council operates in this way, uh, by endorsing but not formally authorizing particular operations, the effect is to confer some authority on the operation, whether we like it or not. I mean, just as a descriptive matter, that is something that happens. And it happens, again, because in my, I mean, it, it's confirmation, let's say, of my view of how authority works in the international legal system, which is that it doesn't simply derive from a set of sources. It's constituted by the various actors who participate and engage with international law in concrete cases. And merely by virtue of the council being, first of all, charged in the charter with having primary responsibility over peace and security issues. And second of all, a collective and deliberative institution, it, it has and it, its decisions and pronouncements have an authority that it might not want them to have. So I don't think it's the case that the council necessarily has control over, that each individual member of the council, let's say, necessarily has control over the authoritative effect of its decisions, because authority is socially constituted by all of the participants in the process, and it's not it's not defined by the subjective intent of any particular actor. So just as a descriptive matter, that seems to me to be true. And if then people are concerned about the normative consequences of this, for example, the fact that ECOWAS got away with engaging in an operation that wasn't authorized, but was widely perceived to be appropriate because the council sort of rubber stamped it in some way, then the answer is to try to persuade the council not to engage in this kind of conduct or to persuade states not to try to exploit this mechanism as a way of sort of avoiding having to go up front to the council and get its authorization before going in. So if it's if it's a problem, and I understand why many people consider it to be a problem, we first have to acknowledge that it is a fact. And so that's largely what I'm trying to do, is to acknowledge that it is a fact. And then on the question of whether it's a problem, I guess I would say it depends what your alternative is. So uh -huh. can we just stop for, for a second there? Before we get on to, is it a problem? But let me just stop there on, on whether it's a fact. So. Again, I, I think I'm, I'm partly persuaded in terms of, I think that you're exactly right, that the behavior of the, the council confers some authority and is, descriptively, is part of the explanation for why countries accepted or didn't object. But I, I still think that that still leaves the question of, yeah, but was it lawful, right? I mean, does the non-objection of states then lead to the inference that therefore it must have been somehow lawful. I mean, so if we're, if we're now before the ICJ and arguing over the legality of, of the ECOWAS intervention, I mean, would it be a valid argument to say, well, nobody objected, so it must have been lawful. And there's been some, some really interesting writing just in the last few years you know, there was a great post in Just Security by, I think, a former representative of Mexico, whose name I'm, I'm blanking on, on the kinds of inferences that can and cannot be drawn from the silence of countries, even within the Security Council, in the face of what would, would appear to be unlawful uses of force. So should we infer that ECO, the ECOWAS intervention was somehow lawful simply because 
as a result of these Security Council tacitly endorsing but not approving the incident, that countries didn't object? Does that make it lawful or does it just mean that it was unlawful, but it got a pass? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, again, this goes back to my anti-positivist leanings. I guess I would say my question for you or for those who ask this question is, what are you trying, what actually in the real world are you trying to answer by asking the question, is this lawful? If what you're trying to answer is, does this operation satisfy some doctrine that exists out in the ether that we all call the law? The answer is no. So it's not consistent with what you might call the law in the book. But if what you're trying to figure out is, well, do the relevant players on the world stage, by which I mean mostly states, but the fact of life, which is in my view, not a good thing, but something that we should just recognize is that not all states participate in the use of vellum to the same extent. Not all states engage on particular operations. I, I wish more states did. So I'm very fond of the Mexican proposal to try to focus more on the views of states that are not active active on the ground or discursively in the use of vellum. But if what you want to answer, if, you, if the question that you want to ask when you say, is this lawful, is do the participants who are focused on this issue act as if it is an appropriate exercise of governance authority? And they, do they do and say things that endorse and support and do not condemn using the language of the law, the operation, then this is very much part of the equation of whether it is lawful. And the answer might be, uh, well, it's at, it, the, for example, the ECOWAS operation became more lawful over time as more and more participants were willing to treat it as an appropriate exercise of governance authority, never finally became lawful in the eyes of all states, but became lawful enough that the fact that it was not uh, consistent with, again, some like set of rules that exist out in the ether did not have any material or normative consequences. And I stress the normative because I'm not just talking about what states do on the ground. I'm also talking about how they engage with the normative valence of the law in these cases. And in these cases, they are making a deliberate decision. The ones who are engaged on the issues are making a deliberate decision not to apply the version of the law that many international lawyers say is law the sort of thing that is out there in the ether. They are sort of constituting authority in real time for these operations. And so if that's the question, like when you ask what is, is it or is it not lawful? If what you mean by that is, do the players on the ground act as if this is an appropriate exercise of authority? And do they, or do they in some ways use the law to legitimize versus undercut? Then my mode of analysis, I think, helps us answer that question a lot better than sort of standard accounts do. Okay. So there's some aspects of what you just said that, that I'll come back to, but I, I interrupted you just when you were about to address the question of whether you sort of descriptively this is the way it is, and then the question is, is this, is this a problem? And you were about to address that when I interrupted you. So, yeah, so I would say, you know, whether, in my view, whether it's a problem depends a little bit on what the alternative is. And so if you think of the alternative to the Security Council engaging in this mode of regulation is that states would not actually use force except when clearly permitted under the general standards and would, in case in hard cases, go to the council and obtain its authorization or otherwise refrain from using force, then, and you think that for the most part, force should be as much as possible limited and we should not leave to individual states any or significant discretion to decide to use force, then this is a problem. But if you think that the alternative is that states will decide on their own to use force and not use the council at all and not engage in sort of the discursive enterprise of trying to justify what it is they're doing before the council and they sort of just like go about their business, then it seems to me that this form of regulation is actually preferable to that that option, because at the very least, with this mode of regulation, states collectively and deliberately in the 
institution that is specifically designated for dealing with these issues get together, talk about it. In many cases, the council itself inserts itself into the situation and makes policy decisions on what ought to happen uh, to address the security problems in the situation at issue. So in the ECOWAS case, the Security Council was very involved after ECOWAS's intervention in what happened in Liberia. The council has been very involved in Mali and Yemen. You could say for the good or for the ill, but if, if what you care about is making sure that these kinds of decisions are as much as possible, given the facts of the world, made before the council, then this mode of regulation is, in fact, preferable to at least one possible alternative that is, in my view, less good. Right. So, and that brings us to one of the aspects of your argument is that this informal regulation that you're positing exists and is part of the USAD vellum means that it's a much more particularistic operation that cases are decided, if you will, uh, in terms of the operation of the USAID Bellum on a case-by-case basis, very much dependent upon the specific facts and the players. And as I understand it, part of the benefit of this, in your view, is that, for one, they don't get used as precedents that expand the general standards of the USAID Bellum. So perhaps you could say a little bit about that. But As you do so, I guess one of the problems I have with this particularistic process is that precisely because it is case by case based on who and what circumstances and which players has a sense of just being extremely discretionary, somewhat ad hoc, somewhat maybe might say arbitrary. And do we want to introduce that? level of arbitrariness into the USAID belt. So I think there are two I think there are two things going on in your question. The first is the particularistic nature of decision making. I don't think that's particular to the council's informal regulation. Because of course when the council, even when the council authorizes operations, which everyone agrees it may do under the terms of the charter, it is authorizing very discrete operations based on the fact. So it, the, the council often in the ordinary course, even when it's acting consistently with, let's say, black letter doctrine, engages in particularistic modes of decision making. And we sure. seem to be OK with that. And oftentimes the council makes bad decisions. And we as lawyers, we seem to say, OK, but that's where authority properly resides. Right. And so it's up to the council to make bad decisions. I think the second. like thing that is irritating you is about devolving authority to individual states. So in the informal mode of regulation, what happens is states fundamentally make the decision, individual states make the decision to use force, and then they try to get the council in some way to sign off on what they are doing, even when the council seems unwilling actually to authorize it. So they're sort of expanding, let's say, or taking advantage of the council's uh, willingness to sign on but not authorize. And that, as a factual matter, ends up devolving decision making to individual states relative to where it would be if states had to go and get the council's authorization. I still would like to say that it's not clear that that's the relevant comparison. It might be that the relevant comparison is not that states make decision as a decisions on their own and then go to the council, but instead the relevant comparison might be that states just make the decision and never get the council involved in the first place. And that would, in my view, be even more destructive to the use of vellum because right, I think embedded in your question is the assumption that wouldn't it be better if <laughs> states did not make these decisions on their own and actually had to go to the council? And if they did not get the council's authorization, they did not act. I'm just not sure that that's the alternative on the table. Right. Yeah, I think you and I are most certainly in agreement that I think we both share the, the desire for the USAID Bellum to be more robust, for states to adhere to the USAID Bellum more, for the council to be to function more effectively. So I agree with you on all of those things. And as you say, I think where disagreement may creep in is you know, what we think is the best solution and what are the alternatives and, and which is the more likely alternative. So one 
a question that it relates to, to what we've just been talking about, but is sort of a more meta uh, concern that I had running through my mind as I was reading the article is sort of, it's a rule of law issue. It seems to me that most conceptions of the rule of law would contemplate that the legal system has to be equal in terms of its equal application to all subjects of the law, that it's intelligible, it's accessible, it's somewhat predictable. And I wonder if, if we accept that this informal regulation is part of the use ad bellum and that there's going to be this particularistic and sort of ad hoc use of you know, informal signals from the Security Council, which is typically going to be to, to favor the stronger countries that are, are able to cajole the Security Council to provide those kinds of signals, that it's not going to be equally applied. It's not going to be necessarily accessible or intelligible. We don't know in advance how the Security Council is going to signal in encouragement or endorsement of what is otherwise clearly an unlawful act. I mean, it's sort of if we were to use a domestic analogy, and I know that domestic analogies are all, always fraught when we're talking about international law, but if we thought of you know, Microsoft cozying up to the Fair Trade Commission or the Securities Exchange Commission or you know, one, some regulatory body within the federal government, not able to get approval for some conduct that would otherwise be unlawful, but nonetheless get some signals that, you know, it could go ahead with a wink, wink, nod, nod, and did so. And as a result, the government sort of turned a blind eye. We would look at that askance as being not consistent with the rule of law. And it seems to me that there's something underlying this idea that we should not simply recognize that what you're talking about happens as a descriptive matter, but that we should embrace it and understand it as being part of the use ad bellum and that moreover, normatively, we should encourage this because as you say, and, and we'll come back to, you argue at the end of your, your article that embracing the informal regulation will help strengthen and preserve the robustness of, of the use ad bellum. But it, there's this rule of law issue that I, I have some trouble with. Good. So I guess I would say two things. First is, it's not clear that the use of bellum, even as it operates according to conventional counts, satisfies like a very robust view of yeah. the rule of law. Fair enough. Because, okay, so, so now you might say, well, it becomes even less robust or less predictable or less equally applied. Okay, but just we should be clear about what the baseline is. Sure. And the second is, I would say, I think that's a real, I think it's a real concern that this is a little bit more unpredictable. Now, it might be this a little bit more unpredictable that militarily powerful states will more often be able to exploit this mode of regulation, although not necessarily because, of course, it depends on the Security Council actually stepping in and affirming in some way what these states are doing. And so... If the Security Council is not willing to do that, or if the members of the council are not willing to do that, you know, or if the state is not sure whether it could get the council's like rubber stamp, then the state might decide like, well, I'm not going to be able to get the legitimacy of the law behind me. And so I'm not going to go ahead and do it. But still, I take your basic point. And I guess I would say it is a concern with this mode of regulation. I don't deny that. But there are other attributes of the rule of law that are sometimes somewhat in tension with the attributes that I think we tend to think of in the, the domestic paradigm of the rule of law, predictability, equal application, consistency, relative clarity. And one of these attributes, and Jeremy Waldron's work has been really actually instructive to me in thinking about it, is what, what I would refer to as the argumentative dimension of the rule of law. So one of the things that we value about law is that it gives us the resources to argue about particular exercises of authority, to insist that material power is not a sufficient basis for making decisions, that in fact, the people who uh, want to make governance decisions need to demonstrate that they have authority for doing it, to hold them accountable, even if only as a normative matter, make them explain what it is they're doing to the people who are affected, argue with them about it, push them to respond to counter arguments based on reason and fact. All of these components of what I would call the argumentative dimension of the rule of law are things that are enhanced by pushing states to go to the council, even when they're acting, let's say, at the periphery of the standard account of the use of bellum. And so while we might, while this informal regulation 
might not do justice to one version of the rule of law, predictability, constraint, equal application. It does help bolster another version of the rule of law. Well, we could talk for another hour just about this article, but I think that your last point makes a, a perfect segue into this other chapter that I understand is going to be forthcoming, which is called, I think, Arguing About Yusad Bellum. And so maybe we could just spend the last five minutes talking a little bit about that chapter. And well, I'll let you explain what, what the argument is in arguing about Yusad Bellum. Okay, great. So Steve Bratner and Ian Johnstone are editing a volume about legal argumentation outside the courtroom. And I've written a chapter in this volume, which is forthcoming. And I used the Soleimani incident from early January 2020, where the U.S. struck Iranian General Hassan Soleimani while he was in Iraq, to ask the question of why we should care whether states actually engage in, let's say, the discursive or argumentative dimensions of the Yusid Bellum. In the Soleimani case, what happened is the United States killed Soleimani. And then, as I'm sure many of your listeners will remember, the Trump administration's justifications for why we conducted that operation were sort of all over the map and incoherent and unsubstantiated. And nevertheless, lots of people said at the time, this is clearly a violation of the use of vellum. And nevertheless, most states were silent about the law in this case. So some states indicated like tepid support for what the U.S. did. Several others indicated resistance to what the U.S. did. But for the most part, the United States acted like the law was irrelevant to its conduct. And most other states did not push the United States on the law. And so it's a good case study to ask like, well, what is lost in this case by the failure to argue about the use of vellum? Um, and to invoke it and apply it and try to justify conduct by reference to it. And I think this is another way in which I think standard accounts are insufficient to help us understand the law's operation or what's at stake in the law. So in standard accounts, the answer would be, well, nothing's really at stake in whether they argue about it. The question is whether the United States acted lawfully or unlawfully. Most people say they acted, it acted unlawfully, and that's the end of the matter. We don't need to worry about whether there was any argument about it. And in my view, that's not quite right. In my view, the failure to take seriously the law, to try to justify U.S. conduct by reference to it and other states, by, the failure by other states to push the United States on what it was doing really did detract from these rule of law qualities that I think are important. And so I identify in the piece a couple. So one is simply reinforcing the idea that material power is not a sufficient basis for making decisions, that in fact, you need to have authority for your decisions, your use, including on the use of force, that this authority derives from the international plane, and it must be earned and established in particular cases. Reason-giving and self-reflection, justification, response to counter-arguments, and the basic human dignity that that affords the people who are affected by these actions or are interested in knowing on what basis and for what reasons governments are exercising their material power, simply creating like a healthy politics on some of the most contentious issues in the world. So we can expect use of force decisions to be contentious. We can expect states to disagree about whether particular operations are or are not appropriate. But at the very least, there's real value in pushing them to argue about it and therefore pushing each side to grapple with what's at stake in the decisions, not just for themselves, but also for people who are affected by the decisions. So these are all aspects of, again, what I would refer to as the argumentative dimension of the rule of law that are really lost when we think of the use of vellum or international law more generally as just like basically a set of conduct rules that must be implemented. And if not implemented, we can just say like, well, then the conduct was unlawful and our analysis is over and we don't need to worry about it anymore. It suggests that we actually ought to analyze use of vellum as a broader set of practices and think about what value we might get out of it even when states are not acting consistently with its conduct norm. Right. And, and do you have a sense uh, or a view as to why it is that so few states staked out a position in, the, in this matter? I mean, is it, 
exhaustion with trying to respond to the Trump administration's repeated assault on the international legal order. Uh, do you get the sense that, for example, if this had been another American administration, as certainly in the past, countries were not shy about expressing their objection to American conduct, whether it was torture in the global war on terror or even some of the conduct of, of the uh, Obama administration in its targeted killing campaign. So why is it that in this case, which was a fairly flagrant violation of international law, there was not more of an objection and not more argument on the part of the rest of the world? I don't really know the answer, but you know, one, one possibility is that it's really hard to argue about authority with an uh, entity that treats authority as if it's irrelevant. So the fact, I mean, the, the one feature of the Trump administration is that it has acted, in my view, as if the authority of international is completely irrelevant to the decisions that it makes, which is, in my, in my view, different from previous U.S. administrations, right. which sometimes violated the law, but at least tried to justify their operations under the law and engaged with the law. So it's a different, it's a different mode of interacting. And I think it's really hard to press an entity like you know, states could say, we need you to justify your operation under international law, but that's, you're not going to get anything if the response is like, we don't care. Or like, right. here are 75 justifications that we're going to throw at the wall. None of them is substantiated, but it doesn't matter. So I think the way in which the Trump administration has approached international law has made it harder to press it on, to use international law in this way. And I think it's, it's, again, it's one, it's, it's, one way in which I think those who analyze the law just in terms of conduct norms are not appreciating the extent to which this administration is doing damage to the international legal system and the U.S. relationship with it. Well, on that depressing note, uh, I see we've I've taken <laughs> more of your time than I'd asked, but I think you have certainly given everyone more than enough food for thought in terms of challenging the way we think about the USAD Bellum regime. And before I let you go, I'm going to ask you to recommend three books or articles, something related to this area that maybe you think has been overlooked or you thought was particularly influential. Okay. So I thought I would recommend first this volume that Tom Rice and Olivier Corten and Alexandra Hofer put out in uh, 2018 called The Use of Force in International Law. And it's a compilation of how the use of vellum was applied in a series of incidents. So it just sort of plays through, uh, works through a number of different case studies. And I think it's a, an extraordinarily valuable resource. So I highly recommend that. Yeah. The second thing I would recommend, and sort of you mentioned this earlier, is the work of Michael Reisman. I know that people have issues with the New Haven School. And in fact, I don't, I don't myself sign on to all components of it. But I think his work on the use of Bellum and his sort of like jurisprudential philosophy is extraordinarily valuable and doesn't get enough play. And so I guess I would recommend his Hague Lectures, which came out in 2013. They're called The Quest for World Order and Human Dignity in the 21st Century. And then the third, this is really just, I want to promote a person who has had a huge influence on my thinking. And it's a colleague of mine. His name is Don Herzog. He just wrote a book called Sovereignty, RIP. But he's written a lot about political theory. And, and so I would really recommend any of his books. I think I've really learned a lot from them over the years. And they have helped me think about international law in interesting and new ways. So the third plug is for Don Herzog. Wonderful. Well, listen, thank you so much. This has been great. You know, I can't wait to see what aspect of international law you challenge next. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have to have you back on at some point to talk about some of your other work because we could, we could talk for hours about much of it. So thanks very much again, Monica. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Thanks to all of you for again listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. You can find links to the material discussed today on our website at jibjabpodcast.com. Be sure to check out our next episode in which we'll be speaking with Alonzo Gramendi Dunkelberg about a Latin American perspective on the USAD Bellum and IHL. 
If you are enjoying this podcast, please do spread the word, share it on Facebook, Twitter, whatever social media you use, and follow us on Twitter at JibJobPodcast. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Craig Martin. The music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, take care. Thank you.